Well, welcome to National Community Church. Uh, so excited about Dick Foth speaking this weekend. He's a spiritual father to me, to us, and we are beginning a new series called Altars. I wanted to take a moment and just frame it. Uh, I'm in my office and behind me is an altar with uh, just some of the miracles that God has done. Uh, I have a liquor bottle that we found in the crack house that we turned into Ebenezer's Coffee House, and uh, I have the men's bathroom sign from Union Station. Uh, when the theater shut down, I figured they wouldn't miss it, and so I took it just as a reminder of God's faithfulness. An altar uh, is a way of saying, the God who got me here will get me there. The God who did this will do that. And so altars mark significant places in our lives, but I think they also uh, are a place where we meet with God. And that's the challenge in Exodus chapter 30. It says, make an altar. Now it's referencing the altar of incense and the priests were to burn incense there every morning and every evening. Uh, it was right by the Holy of Holies, in fact, right in front of the curtain. And so it's as close as you could get to the presence of God. If you want to get closer to God, one way to do that is to build an altar, a place where you seek God. And so my, my challenge during this series is that uh, during this Lenten series, that every day you would make an altar, make an altar every day. Uh, in the morning and at night, uh, Laura and I are going to be kneeling. In fact, uh, I'll probably get out of bed, kneel right there, and begin the day that way. And then at the end of the day, I, I want to kneel and uh, offer myself to God again. Uh, I want to encourage everybody at NCC to do this little experiment. Three words at the beginning of Exodus 30. Make an altar, make an altar every day kneel before God morning, evening, and let's see what God does. The altar is where God makes alterations in our lives. I'm believing this could be the best Lent season of your life that God wants to reveal himself in new ways. And at the end of the day, uh, we wanna grow closer to God. This is a way to do that. I know this series is gonna be a blessing and a challenge. And so can we just right now across all of our campuses give a huge NCC welcome to Dick Foth. Do you know how few congregations I go to that when they announce small groups <clears throat> say, if you're involved in the White House or the Hill or the Supreme Court, come on Thursdays. I just like to bring that up. So that's just a thought. Pardon my voice tonight, if you will. I'm, uh, I'm a little raspy. This has been the week of the National Prayer Breakfast here in Washington, D.C., where 3,500 people from 150 nations receive invitations to come and pray for leaders of the world in the spirit of Jesus of Nazareth. That's how the invitation goes out. It's the 64th year. It started in the Eisenhower administration in February of 1953. And um, it's the stuff that happens in the halls oftentimes that is more powerful sometimes than the things that happen in the ballroom. But I got to tell you that the ballroom this year wasn't half bad. Anytime you have um, Mark Burnett and Roma Downey as a couple, anybody know those names? 
they have TV programs, they, they did the Bible, okay? They stood up and told about their story of an Englishman marrying an Irish girl who was raised in Derry, Northern Ireland, and how across the divides, Jesus makes the difference for them. It was this powerful moment. I'd just like to note that if you've never heard Andrea Bocelli sing Amazing Grace, I just, just a thought, and if you've never heard the fullback from University of Alabama, Derrick Henry, pray. He closed in prayer, and I loved it when he said, and Lord, I pray for my generation that you will do things in us to change the world. Anyway, I've been doing a lot of talking, and so uh, I'm not out of words, I'm just out of throat. So there we go. <clears throat> There's this passage in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, that I just want to reference before we go to the main text. When you go to Hebrews, the 11th chapter in the New Testament, there's a whole list of people who are considered people of faith, people who trusted God in unique moments. And in verse 8 of Hebrews 11, it reads this way, by faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. So I've said, you've heard me say this before. Here's Abraham, big businessman. He loads up everybody that we'll, we'll read in just a moment. He gets his whole family, he gets all of his camels and donkeys, and he goes to the edge of town, and God has told him to go. And so if Rotary International had been in play at the time, I'm sure the chairman of Rotary or the president of the local chapter would be on the edge of town and say, Abe, where are you going? And he gives them this great faith response. I don't know. <laughs> By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. So the, the text in Genesis, the 12th chapter, elaborates that phrase. Genesis 12, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Now, we live in a culture where you get moved around all the time. Some of you have positions where you move every two years and you go across the country or around the world or something like that and they call the movers and United Van Line shows up or Mayflower or somebody and zip, zip, you're gone. But in these days, you just didn't pick up you know, he's over here by Baghdad, and he's going all the way over the Fertile Crescent down into what was the Palestine in that day. And he, and he goes down into that area, and this is what God tells him. This is a covenant, if you will. I'm talking about the altar of covenant this, in this session. You will hear in succeeding weeks various emphases about sacrifice and victory and faithfulness and all of that, but this weekend, I'm talking about the altar of covenant. God says, I'll make, you into a, I'll make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I'll curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram, I love this part. This is my favorite part right here. Abram was 75 years old. Like, I'm younger than that, slightly. <laughs> Just slightly. Give me another year, we'll be all over this. And when he sent out from Haran, 
when he set out from Haran, he took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they sent out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Now, the land of Canaan was like one of the more um, pagan places around. I don't know how you are more pagan, but I mean, this is a place that had practices that were horrific in a lot of ways. Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah, Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There, there he built an altar and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. When you think about loading up everybody and going to a place you don't know, having been spoken to by a God you can't see, that's a little disconcerting. But when he gets there, he does the one thing he knows that he can do to honor that covenant or that relationship. Trust is doing what you can do, not what you can't. Trust is doing what you can do, not what you can't. So it says he built an altar. And it's interesting when we talk about an altar of covenant in this town. Let's just take this community. You don't hear much talk walking down Constitution Avenue of altars and covenants. You might, if you're buying a house, they might have this thing about covenants and restrictions and what you can and can't do and all. But covenant is not modern language. Contract is modern language, but not covenant. So this, this becomes an altar of covenant. And you might hear, you might hear altar used in this town by somebody writing an op-ed piece that says truth has been sacrificed on the altar of expediency or something like that. But not this kind of altar. The altar of covenant is a place and a promise. The altar of covenant is a place and a promise. This is a book about geography and people. It's about places, it's about heaven and earth, it's about light and darkness, it's about the journeys of people through all kinds of circumstances. It's fun to read this book, the Bible, and find yourself in it. You say, I, I did find myself in it and I wasn't too excited when I found myself in it, you know? But the fact is, the fact is that it's about places and people and points in time. And an altar of, this altar of covenant represents that. Three weeks ago, my son-in-law and I were in Cairo. And this photo shows that place. We went to the university there. It's uh, Al-Azra, or I, I can't quite say it. Hazar, maybe, is how, how you say it. And it's a huge mosque and a, so forth. And when I took the picture and it came onto my iPhone, you know, the cloud and all that, it's very fancy, and, and it came onto the phone, and there it was, it had the name of the place I was, I didn't write it in, it just had the place I was because of that GPS thingy, and, and then it said January 14th, and it had the time of day, it was time, time uh, dated, time, place, and date stamped, if you will. What an altar does in my life it, is it does that. Pastor Mark referenced it just a little bit coming into this series. Altars in your life 
do a time, date, place stamp that when you go back and you look at it and you reflect on it, it's a moment. It's a profound thing. An altar is not like a casual place. When you, most altars in, back in this day were built out of dirt and out of stone and out of wood and other kinds of things. But this is a, a serious thing. You're looking at a guy, you're looking at a guy who loves jokes. I love to tell jokes. I like, you know, and they have to be good. And uh, I used to tell jokes as a kid and my dad said, that, that wasn't such a good joke, Dick. I, I, well, it seemed good to me when I was telling it. But the, but the point is that when I was a stutterer, Back in the day when I was a kid, I could memorize jokes and, people, and make people laugh and they'd accept me in their group. Looking back, I found that I didn't know that at the time, but when I looked back, that's what I was, what I was doing. And so I like to have fun. I like to laugh. I think, you know, I even found a verse that said, you know, merriment does the heart good. You know, so if you can get a Bible verse for what you're doing, that helps you. And so I was, you know, <laughs> I love doing that. But an altar is not the corner of chuckles. An altar is a serious, sacred moment in time. It's a serious, sacred place of transaction. Altars are about transactions. They're not just about hanging out. They're not just about why don't we swing by the altar. They're about doing business with God. An altar, in this case, is a memorial on Abram's part to the place God had led him and a memorial to the place God met him. It's a place to do business with God that leaves an imprint on your soul. I have a friend who's now with the Lord, but years ago he was an old, what I called an old Alabama river bottom preacher. He could tell stories that would just tear you. You'd give him your wallet, your car, your house, all that stuff when you're done. One of those guys, you know. And, but, it, but, but he told stories about God at work in profound ways. And one day he told me, he said, Dick, I'm going to write a book about preaching. And uh, I said, okay. He said, I'm going to call it, so you're called to preach. I said, okay, can I tell you what I think your thesis is? He said, yeah. I said, I think you think preaching is that exercise by which through your words and your stories and the scriptures you create an atmosphere in which people want to do business with God. And he said, that's right. He never wrote the book, but I never forgot the conversation. An altar is a place for doing business with God. It's a place where he wants to do business with you. And if you've ever had that kind of experience, it never goes away. It's imprinted on your soul. When I was pastor of this small college where much of what the college did was to train people for education and for what we would call vocational ministry. I don't know how many times during my 14 years, sometimes I just walk into the chapel and oftentimes I would find some older folks Folks who had gone to that school in the 50s or the early 60s, or I was there in the, in the late 70s and into the 80s. And these folks would just be sitting there, like they'd be back in the fourth row, just sitting like right there. And I'd go over and introduce myself, and I'd say, hi, I'm Dick Foth, and they'd say, I'm so-and-so and so-and-so. And I said, is there anything we can do for you? They said, no, no, we... 
we haven't been here for 25 years and we've been off and we've done this and that and the other. We met here in this school, but on a Thursday night in a mission service, sitting there, right where we're sitting, sitting right here, God met us. Sitting right here, something so profound happened that we just wanted to come and sit here one more time. We're not trying to reinvent it. We're not trying to experience that again. But the thing he did for us here, we've been through some rough times. All of our dreams that we had have not been fulfilled. And you read Abram's story. You go down through here, and he, he has a little checkered history here when you read about him. But they said, even though all of our dreams haven't been fulfilled, sitting in this place on that night in January of whenever it was, God showed up. This was a place of altar and anointing and empowerment right here. I was a freshman at Cal Berkeley in the spring of 1960. And um, I went to a missions conference. I was, I was going to be a doctor. I went to Cal Berkeley to be a doctor, pre-med. How many pre-med people do we have here who made it past the first year? No, you don't have to. I'm just kidding. <laughs> and after getting five units of D in chemistry one day, I decided not to inflict myself on the population. Just <laughs> who, who wants a doc who got a C in surgery? You know, you don't want that, okay? But I went to this missions conference, and the guy who spoke, like, spoke for an hour and a half, and he hadn't showed his movies yet, this missionary guy. And I am 17 years old, not quite 18, and I, and I took my Bible. I was struggling I was struggling with issues in my life and with calling or what am I supposed to do or how does this work? And I went up to a little chapel area up in the balcony, back behind the balcony of this congregation, and I knelt, like Pastor Mark was saying, I knelt by a chair. And there was Venetian blinds. There were Venetian blinds where this window, and there was a cleaner's next door. And it had this light that, you know, one of those... And so I just opened the Bible, and I don't suggest this as a really tremendous way of guidance, but I, I just opened the Bible, and a strip of light fell across the page. And it fell across the verse from Matthew, the fifth chapter, the 13th verse, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount, which says, and this is a paraphrase, that if the salt has become, you are the salt of the earth, and if the salt has become tainted, if it's been compromised, how in the world, if you will, will the earth be salted? And it was like a knife going into my, it was like a hand grenade going off in my head because of all the verses, of all of the things that could have happened or been said, or, but it was a moment in time that when I look back at this skinny 17-year-old kid kneeling by this theater-style chair like you have right here and just and God showed up. It was an altar on East 14th Street in Oakland, California, back in the spring of 1960. It's a place we establish identity. Altars are, the altar of covenant is a place we establish identity and we come back to it to find our identity. We keep coming back because it's so easy to wander off or stuff happens or we get discouraged or we don't know what happened. And, and when we come back to that place and say, this is how, this is where he met me. That's the peace. And as I was 
as I was writing this out, I just had this thought. I've been tremendously privileged to live in a bunch of different places and have a bunch of different friends and have people help me and have God, you know, frame my life even when I wandered off and did stupid stuff, you know. But I wish for you moments like that one I had on East 14th Street. I wish for you moments and engagements like those folks who came back to Bethany Chapel and said, we just wanted to swing back by, not to recreate the moment, but just to remember that God showed up here, that he covenanted with us in this moment. So that's the place, that's the altar. What's the process? The word that's used is covenant. That's not very common, not a very common word in our lexicon today. It's not a common word in our language. We talk about contracts, we talk about litigating, we talk about agreements. But a covenant, it's an interesting word. It's in the Hebrew, berith is used 280 times, almost 300 times in the Old Testament. Its corollary word in the Greek in the New Testament is used 33 times. This is big. And the idea of covenant is a binding agreement between two parties. A binding agreement between two parties. We all get that. We understand about agreements. But it's sort of a combination of a, of a promise, an oath, um, that whole thing. I, I have a friend who who ran the Navy, he was chief of naval operations for, for five years, from 2000 to 2005, Admiral Vern Clark. And he was put into that office, and I went to see him a few weeks later, and he was typing on his computer. And he said, Dick, look at this. And he showed me this thing that he was typing. He said, these are five things that I'm sending to all my flag officers, all of my admirals. I'm sending this, and they were five goals. And he said, but he was a strong believer in what's, coven what's called covenantal leadership. And he said, but when I get together with them personally, this is, this is the conversation we're going to have. The conversation's going to be when an 18-year-old young man or young woman stands up and enlists in the military service, he or she raises his right hand and says, I give an oath, I promise, if you will, to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and to obey the commands of those above me all the way up to the commander-in-chief, so help me God. That's a, that's a promise. That's what they covenant with us. And then he says, I look at my admirals and I say, so what do we covenant with them? What's our covenant to them? And he said, this is what, this is what I tell them, that the United States Navy is not designed to cut a fine silhouette on the horizon, but that we will give you the best training, the best equipment, the best learning context, and we, and, the, and we will train you in the best skills, and we will help you understand that to serve is a noble thing. Covenants go both ways. And when you look at this, we understand a mutual agreement. I got a car, you got the cash, you write the check, I give you the pink slip, we shake hands. We get that. That's a mutual agreement. But in scriptures, there's another kind of covenant, and it had to do with royalty. 
people who in that day were called suzerains. And they would make covenants with people they had conquered. And it went something like this, that we're not going to kill you, but what we will do is have this covenant, and the covenant will be detailed by me, the royal person. And these are the conditions. This is how it's going to work. And you have two options. You can accept it or reject it, but you cannot change it. You can accept it or reject it, but you cannot change it. Sometimes I negotiate, even with God. I've never won. I had just a thought. I have a friend who also is with the Lord. I got a lot of friends who are with the Lord. They've gone on ahead. When I was a 16-year-old, he was a 71-year-old, and he came to our town in Oakland, California, and he was a tennis player, and I was learning to play tennis. I wasn't good, but I was lithe and fast, and, but not precise. And that 71-year-old man beat the tar out of me on the tennis court. He stood in one place and dropped him over the net and drove him to the back corner. And, you know, and I'm sweating, and he's not sweating. He's just smiling, you know, bam, you know, whap, you know, just like that. But he was a, he was a godly man. He was, he was what I call a practical mystic. That's somebody who's two inches off the floor but not off the wall. Okay, he's one of those guys. It's like when you talk to him, you say, this guy, I think this guy like really hears from God. And one day he told me the story. He said, I was a missionary in North India. I was a young man. We were working our hearts out. We were doing everything we knew to do. And, but I just wanted, I just wanted what Mike said tonight this, to, to start our time. I just want the fullness of God more completely in my life all the time. That's what I want, he said. And he said, so I went to my knees. I made an altar, went to my knees, and I said, God, I just want you to fill me up. I just want you, just overwhelm me, please, whatever. And he said, as I'm, as I'm having this little conversation, I felt like the Lord was saying, Bob, I'd like your tennis racket said, my tennis racket, like it's the only exercise I get. You want me to have a healthy body. This is, these are tough conditions. You would. He says, your tennis racket, Bob. He said, but Lord, I, I really, he said, your tennis racket. He said, that night, literally and figuratively, I put my tennis racket on the altar and said, whatever I have is yours, whatever my dreams are. And he said, that night, God overwhelmed me with his majesty and his power and his grace and his joy and his fullness. And he goes on with superlatives. And then he would pause and grin and say, you know, Dick, God gave me back my tennis racket, but he never gave me back my heart. Here is a God who says, if you would be intentional with me, I've been intentional with you. Why don't you raise up an altar in this place or at that moment. This, your life is not a casual thing. Your life is serious business. And you can be a laugher. That's tremendous. But there are times and places for that. And there are times and places for weeping and for calling out to God in a covenantal process. Life's built around co covenants. 
small and large, you know, the big one, of course, is marriage. You stand up and say, I give everything I have to you, and you give everything you have to me, and for richer or for poorer, or for poorer or for poorer, or, you know, whatever it is, you know, however that works, you know, you, you do that, and you don't know what it means. I mean, you don't, you want it to work, but you don't, you don't have any idea what's coming six and a half years later. You don't have any idea, but what you've said is, whatever comes, we're in this together. I covenant with you. You have other kinds of covenants. You have the military thing where the, you have, you become a, a government servant in some way and they swear on the Bible, the president of the United States. The next year they're going to have a new president on the west steps of the Capitol is going to put his hand on that Bible and say, you know, I swear before I take an oath before God and before this nation. When you're a court witness, when you're doing stuff that is really critical, they have you make a covenant about your words. I wish for you strong covenants. In the day of tangential connectedness, in a day of being able to frame how you see me in this way and that, what happens when you open yourself to another and say, let's take time with this and really know and really covenant and see what happens in that? Because in the end, covenant wins. Covenant wins eternally. The whole thing about this book, from the Torah to the book of Revelation, is about a God who wants to covenant with us at the place of altar, at the place of serious transaction. There's an interesting word study having to do with the word to raise up an altar. I was on the phone this past week with a young friend of mine. I have the privilege of having a few young friends. Not all of them are dead. And uh, <laughs> his name's Peter Hartwig, and he's a fourth year at University of Virginia. And he, he majors in classics and religion, like he studies Latin and Hebrew. I mean, it makes my head hurt. And, and, and I was talking. I said, I'm going to do this thing on altar. And he said, you know, I was studying. I got a little thought on that. Could I send it to you? Would it be? I said, Sure. Because when you do stuff, you need to let other people speak into it, you know, like it could be from the Lord if you listened. And so he just sent me these thoughts, and I've condensed them, that the, that the verb that's used in most of the text, not in this particular one, interestingly enough, for an altar is to raise up an altar. It means build, both in the Hebrew and the Old Testament, Greek and the New Testament. And it's a transactional moment where God is raising something up. You're participating and he's raising something up. It's interesting because the same verb that's used for raising up altars in the Old Testament is the equivalent verb in the New Testament where it says God raised up Jesus from the dead. So the, the link, if you will, the hope of the resurrection, the hope of what happens when you engage with God in particular ways, in particular times that are time-stamped dated, you know, that, that, that whole thing, it's the same vocabulary. Centuries before Jesus, Abram raised up an altar to honor God, to show God's authority and dominion in his life. And Jesus says, I'm going to be raised on the third day. They didn't get that. You know, the disciples did. I wouldn't have gotten it. You know, they didn't get it. And he says, but before I go, why don't, we, why don't we eat together? 
And at the supper, he passes around the wine. And he says, this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. This is a royal covenant. This isn't just Fred and Joe or Susie and Harry. This is, not, this, this is the almighty God and one of his creatures, if you will, engaging in a royal covenant. And this is what he says. Here's the deal. I'm going to sacrifice my life for you. There's a price to pay, and I'll pay it all. You say, no, 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 I need to do my fair share. Get, uh, give me, I'll do 10%. Let me just do a little work. And so He says, no, 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 I'll do it all. You can take those terms, or you can leave those terms, but you can't change those terms. Aren't you grateful for the God who says, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a guilty stain. He washed it white as snow. Here is the God who meets us in the places of our greatest need. And from Abram to Jesus, when sacrifice is needed, when memorial is needed, when contact and engagement and brokenness and refreshing and resurrection life is needed, that's where he meets us. I pray for you, a life full of covenants. And when you start with the royal one, when you start with the big one, where he says, I'll pay it all, take it or leave it, but you can't change the terms. When you start there and build other covenants on that, who knows what could happen? Resurrection shows up. Life shows up, beauty shows up, relationships show, show up, and you get to be right at the heart of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. For those of us who sit here this weekend, and we can't really point to that kind of a moment. I pray for them in particular, for those kinds of moments, not something concocted, not something manufactured, but something that comes out of a grateful and a needy heart. Lord, for me, I've been around a long time. Help me to have new moments like that. It's not enough that I had a moment like that when I was 17 on 14, East 14th Street in Oakland, California. Let me have a moment like that in Windsor, Colorado, and in Washington, D.C., and in Eugene, Oregon. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy, your grace, your provision, and the fact that you are God who raises up altars, and you raise us from death to life. We love you for it. We stand on tiptoe to see what it is you want to do next. In Jesus' name, amen.